Welcome to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell. I'm a talent management thought partner and results coach, wife, and mom. Talent management leaders are hungry to learn from their peers and want to hear about real-life examples of successful talent projects. Talent Management Truths is for and by talent management leaders. My guests and I discuss actual successes and lessons learned from their experience in our field from a very practical, not theoretical point of view. You'll discover important insights about how to elevate your confidence and amplify your influence in a role known for being caught in the organizational middle. I'm thrilled to have you listening. So let's get going and hear the truth about talent management today. Welcome back to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell, and today my guest is Tanya Cervoni. Are you and your organization currently spending energy thinking about the post-pandemic work environment? What does a hybrid workplace look like? How do we need to shift now that the status quo has been turned upside down? If so, you need to listen to this episode. Tanya has a unique opportunity in her role as Senior Practice Leader with the Canadian Management Centre. Every day, she's speaking to talent leaders in all types of organizations, learning about their needs and challenges. Her role is really that of a thought leader who stays in touch with what are the needs right now, what do organizations need, and then she distills these into themes and messages that people can consume. Tanya has such a unique perspective given her varied background, and I know you'll stay interested right to the end. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Talent Management Truths. I'm Lisa Mitchell, your host, and I'm joined today by Tanya Cervoni, who is Senior Practice Leader at Canadian Management Centre that offers training and development and consulting to a variety of organizations nationally. Tanya brings to the table 20 plus years of experience as a talent development professional. She has a particular passion for working with people to shift mindsets and to help them create tangible results. Very practical. I've known Tanya for a few years now and she can speak the strategy really well grounded in what's happening today. And she also knows how to put that into practice in day-to-day organizational life. So I'm really, really pleased to have you with us today, Tanya. How are you? I'm good. Happy to be here. Nice to see you. Excellent. You too. You too. So let's kick off with my first question today. I'm hoping you can share with the audience a little bit about what brought you into the world of talent management, talent development. What was your journey, so to speak? Early on, I think we were talking earlier before we started this session that my background is in education and originally set out to be a teacher. And I did teach high school in the Toronto School Board for three years. However, I found that there were a lot of constraints within the system. I wasn't necessarily loving what I was teaching. So I did a major in French literature. That's another long story for another time. But absolutely loved learning French. But then as I was teaching, I was teaching a number of subjects for which I was not qualified just simply because I could speak the French language. And that led to a lot of dissatisfaction and burnout. So I decided to leave the profession. And at first I was like, "Ah, I don't know what I'm going to do. And This is back over 20 years. And I did a certificate in technical writing because a friend told me it was a hot job market for technical writers. So I did that and I got into creating manuals. If you know me at all, you would know that that also was not satisfying over the long term, but it did create an interesting segue into 
instructional design because at the time they were starting to migrate manuals online. So that got me into online learning back in the days of coding your own HTML and all of that, which eventually got me into the door of L&D and my first corporate L&D job. So that was sort of how I got into that. And then I worked for an organization for Loyalty One, and it was a company that invested heavily in learning and development. And I got the opportunity to participate in so many learning events, certifications, and being a learning junkie. I was like, okay, I'm home. This is, this is the right place for me. And then I started getting exposed to more HR initiatives because HR and L&D and OD were all kind of working together. So yeah, it was, it was a great segue into, into the profession and I've just stuck with it ever since. Excellent. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because there's a few synergies there and we were talking a bit about it earlier. So we're both former French immersion teachers, which is weird. And my degree was in French language and literature as well, my, right? <laughs> my BA. So interesting that, you know, we, we find ourselves all these years later, right, in, in a similar field to each other, but quite different from where we began. I think that's the case for so many people. I love hearing about how they kind of, things sort of happen, right? They're sort of like, oh, I'm on this lily pad. I'm going to jump over to this one. And oh, that opens the door into this. It's quite intriguing. So tell me about who mentored you along the way. So I've had a few mentors along the way. The one person that really stands out, I think, because, you know, I worked with her so early in my career, that woman named Debbie and in a, in a previous organization, again, many years ago. And she was the person who tapped me on the shoulder for my first people leadership role. I didn't know that I wanted to be a leader. I didn't know if I could excel at leading people. She really helped to, to coach me, to encourage me to see what my strengths were, that whole notion of discovering your strengths and all of that was all very new to me. And I think beyond that, you know, she taught me a lot. She was director of human, our human resources group. And she taught me a lot about the power of authentic leadership. She was, she was a straight shooter. You knew you were going to, you know, <laughs> she wasn't going to mince words, but she had a really wonderful way of being able to be kind but honest, kind of like what you and I have talked about when we talk about critical conversations. She's somebody who speaks truth to power. And I think I really learned a lot about the value of that in building your, your leadership credibility and also distilling what's really important to you as an individual, as a leader, how you let that lead the impact you want to make with your team. So I have a lot of respect for her. We, we, you know, we're still in touch to this day, although not as frequently. And she really helped kick my butt when I didn't think I could do things. And she held my feet to the fire and just had a way of pushing me to, to go beyond what I thought I could, you know, pushing those, those limitations. Yeah. It sounds like she really saw something in you that you hadn't seen yourself yet. This potential that was untapped for leadership. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think without her encouragement, I just wouldn't have had well, I, I was about to say I wouldn't have had the courage to step into more senior roles, but, you know, it probably would have just taken a lot longer without that support. Right. And that example that she set. Well, and the whole concept of, you know, strengths-based development to really tapping into that. How do we leverage strengths? I mean, we hear about that all the time nowadays, right? It's not like it's a brand new concept. I mean, now discover your strengths. Donald Clifton, that's pretty old now. It's been around for a while, but I think in the general consciousness, it was much newer and rarer back then. Back then, it sounds like we're really old. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to skip over that comment. But it's it's very true. And it's still, I still think that notion comes up, even though Gallup and others have made that, you know, Marcus Buckingham, that whole notion of strength is much more common. I think as human beings, there's still that default 
or at least it's certainly my default for the glass half half empty. You know, what what am I not doing right? What do I think are my limitations that might cause me to fail? So it's almost, you know, maybe it's that biological wiring for the threat response. What are those things that might set me up not to be successful versus focusing more attention on just getting better at what I'm already good at or what I enjoy? So it's still something that needs to I need to practice sometimes daily. You you and me and every coaching client I work with, I would say that's the case, right? We get in our own way. We set up obstacles for ourselves. It's kind of interesting, right? That saboteur voice, which is not about the strengths at all. It's about the deficits. And so it can be tough to turn those stories, put them on mute and tune them out. So yeah, I appreciate where you're coming from. When you think about all, I mean, you're very, very accomplished. You think about all of the many talent initiatives that you've led the charge on that you've birthed, if you will, right from right from strategy, from understanding what the needs were through implementation. What's one that really stands out for you? Yeah, there are a few. I think one of the big ones, again, goes back to earlier time in my career. And I think why this one stands out is because it really was from concept to execution. And I was new in a managerial role in a, in a learning HR function and was asked to create a talent management program from scratch. So from concept all the way through. And this was both thrilling and quite intimidating. But I think one of the things I'm proud of is when I look back at how the organization I was in was was promoting individuals, It you know, they were often falling into the very common trap of promoting people who are really strong in an individual contributor role or very strong in technical skills. And then seeing the implications of that when they moved into a people leadership role, either ill-equipped or just simply not a good fit. And I got to see that also firsthand because in the same organization, I also worked as a 360 feedback coach. Oh, okay. So I got to see the kind of firsthand, I would see, I would get the reports and it was my job to kind of debrief this with individuals in a way that wasn't crushing to their to their self-esteem and their engagement and help that help them turn it around as, a, as an opportunity. So being able to educate leaders on the difference between performance and potential, being able to talk about how we want to reward certain behaviors, being able to craft a pipeline for people who, you know, a lot of times people would go into these leadership roles, not because they really wanted to be leaders, they just want to make more money. They wanted to have a bigger span of, of, you know, of authority. And the only route to doing that was to become a people leader, whether that was a good fit or not. So being able to create an individual contributor career path that allowed people to, you know, stay engaged, stay motivated, earn more money over time, use what they were actually good at and build that all in the program. And even being able to, I like I'm a little bit artistic and a little bit creative. So I like to, you know, was able to design the, the brochures, the games that we had around it from a change management perspective to bring awareness into the organization and starting to see how that changed the attitude and the culture around what we valued in the organization in terms of, you know, leadership behaviors and promotional practices. So say a bit more about that. Like what was that shift that you noticed? Well, I think how the organization started to define leadership success started to change and shift. So in some of the metrics, we started to do things like measuring employee engagement in a different way and linking that to, well, we had to be careful because, you know, when you start to measure employee engagement, there's a certain level of confidentiality. So we couldn't get data for groups that were smaller than a certain size. But 
we started to make correlations between how somebody kind of grew into their role, the leadership development they'd been exposed to, the kind of coaching and mentoring they'd been exposed to, and the engagement levels on their team. So we started to get clearer and better at how we could sustain, I want to say, more effective leaders. And it just wasn't something that was in the spotlight before. Like as long as somebody was a producer and they were hitting their numbers, then there wasn't a lot of consideration for any collateral damage that might be happening from that employee engagement. And I'm not suggesting that somebody who's crushing their numbers is necessarily a bad leader. You can do both, but it just wasn't something that I think was top of mind for people and they didn't really understand some, you know, and we started to link other metrics, you know, around retention, et cetera. And it was just something that today sounds like common sense, but, you know, back 25 years ago and in this company that was kind of smaller, these were like, these were new concepts. This was cutting edge thinking in terms of how to create a culture that sustained engagement and productivity and had the leadership behaviors that you wanted to instill that aligned with the company values. So th- those values, we went through that whole exercise where so that they aren't just words on the wall kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because I, I do thought partner work with different talent management leaders and different organizations. And some of the people I talk to, you know, it's, it's a constant frustration to, in some cases, not all, to be able to convince the powers that be, the people really holding the purse strings, that it's not just about the productivity. The engagement factor, the retention, they're, they're, it's all part of an important, they're all important puzzle pieces, really, in the whole, in the mix, because your people are your most expensive cost in running a business. They're also your most important asset. There's so much potential there that's typically untapped. So looking at it, choosing to use more than one perspective, quality, quantity, and add in that satisfaction piece is key. So you, you made a comment a few minutes ago. And you said, you know, it sounds simple, but back then this was kind of groundbreaking. And it does sound simple. And I think there's enhanced or elevated awareness around the need to tie results to data. Like here's the impact. So when we were doing this and putting this focus on leadership behavior and development, here's the impact we're getting and why that matters. It's a simple concept. And yet a lot of people never get back to doing it. The the evaluation strategy, the how will you know if it's successful usually gets dropped because people are sprinting to the next initiative. It's not anybody's fault. It just comes across their desk. So what was it in your case that allowed you to make sure that focus was there to be able to say, this is why this matters? And I would love to say it was because I was just so influential and able to really, you know, <laughs> talk the talk the language of business and uh, make those soft metrics somehow hard. But that would be a stretch of the truth. I think I was quite fortunate to have members of the senior leadership team who just got it. They became really the sponsors of the initiative and they, they understood because we were also, it, it was also an organization that was growing quite rapidly. And so there was, you know, I think when you, when you're a smaller company, you can, it's easier to maintain a certain culture and keep your hands around that. And as we started to grow rapidly, there was just a need to put more structure around that to really articulate in observable ways, the kind of culture we wanted, the kind of behaviors we needed from people and to attract the right talent to that as well. So I think, you know, there was just a a couple of key people who really understood the value of that. So when I would be brought in to present to the executive team, which I had the opportunity to do a few times, I was really sort of set up for success. And it gets back to that whole thing around 
can have something that's grassroots, but you really do need, if you want to have this be um, an organizational wide initiative, you really need to have that one or two high level sponsors who really have your back because these things take more work. And I, to your point about, it seems simple. I think there's a lot of organizations who don't want to put out the surveys or the evaluation because when you ask, there's a responsibility to do something with that information. And that can take a lot of time. Like even in a recent webcast that we did right now for CMC, I asked in a survey, how many of you have surveyed your people in terms of what kind of post-COVID workplace arrangement they'd like in terms of hybrid. And surprisingly, I don't remember the exact number, but I think there was like half of organizations who had not put out that survey. Now, I understand in some environments there's there isn't any flexibility. I mean, if you live in, you know, work in healthcare or certain industries where it's got to be face to face, you're not going to ask your people like, do you want a hybrid work arrangement? still surprising the number of people who aren't going and the number of organizations who aren't going out to their people to assess what they need to understand what it is that's going to drive that engagement, especially given everything that's changed over the last 18 months. So it's harder to ask and be responsive and because you can never make everyone happy. So sometimes it's just easy to go in there and go, this is the way it shall be and let the cards fall where they may. I think the more effective organizations definitely are the ones who are getting more tuned in with that story. I went a little on a tangent there. No, it's, it's really interesting because I, because I, because I agree, I think. So there are a few things that I heard there is, is having that sponsor level support. And it sounds like there was an appreciation for this is a systems. This is a system wide initiative that we're embedding. That's important to us in this growth trajectory. Having that sponsorship is really, really key to getting the buy-in to be able to follow through and show here's the impact of what we're doing, the importance, you know, be able to build credibility around that. I also think though on on evaluation, on actually digging in and being able to say, how did that work, that reflective practice? I think a lot of times it gets missed because people rush through the beginning part. They, They see a need, they take it oftentimes at face value, not always, and they go in and they deliver something a learning initiative or some kind of new system or tool, they forget to take the before snapshot, like the click, like where are we now and where do we want to be after we do all of this? And so once they get to the end, all of a sudden they don't have that before snapshot for comparison. So they're kind of at a loss. How do I prove, how do I show why this worked or how, or how it didn't? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think we see that all the time in learning and training initiatives. We can be really quick to assess what the problem is and jump right into the solution. But yeah, I mean, as, as, as a learning professional, I see that all the time. We, we jump in, we say, OK, this is the issue. We need better collaboration. And so we're going to do a training initiative on a collaboration and then it's done. And as long as people were satisfied. And so I think a couple of things, we don't plan for the reflection time at the end for any projects in the ones like very rarely do we actually plan sort of that post-mortem time occasionally, but not frequently enough to kind of reflect on what worked, what didn't work, what, how would that inform the next project? We could just go on autopilot. But also if, at the front end, I mean, it's, it's true. Like, how do we know we're going to be successful? What are those milestones? How are we even measuring that it's a problem now? Is it because one person said we had a problem? And so in that as a senior person, so everybody just jumped and said, okay, we need to do this ASAP. It's still unfortunately very common, even though it's common sense to set those those benchmarks so that we can actually we can actually measure it's astounding but true it, it is it's and it's and it's, it's a shame you know my favorite question to ask sam being brought in to consult on something with an organization you know it's always and they're saying we need you to build you know whatever it is succession planning system and create the whole strategy and whatever it looks like for its leadership development but my favorite question is always okay 
So what will be different once we've done this? And they'll tell me some things and then what, how will you know? And it's those two questions that I think they don't always know the answer right away, but it opens up this new conversation and it's like, oh yeah, I should be thinking about that, right? So it helps them sort through what's most important. Yeah, that's really good. The how will you know part, I, 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 just a different version of the same kind of concept is asking, okay, so it's six months from now, it's a year from now, We're, we are celebrating the success of this initiative. What are we celebrating? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What's present? What's not present? And it's sort of a different way to get to the same thing. Like, how are you going to know? Like, what are going to be the tangible differences? That's a beautiful way to do it because it really evokes visualization. So it's really appealing to, to it's making it easier for them to, to kind of put themselves there. I know. I want to suggest that they can be the hero, right? We're going to be celebrating you and all the good work that you did in leading this. I think that's a tremendous nugget of wisdom that you're offering people listening, right? Really, really a key way to help our clients get that clarity of thought before we just launch into solving. Let's explore and make sure we're getting at the right thing. When I think about you, something that's always made me curious that I think is kind of neat is that you've been on the inside of these companies, these organizations in learning and talent, smaller, larger And you're at CMC now and you're in a bit of a different role, right? As a senior practice leader, could you walk us through like what are the key differences for you in terms of what you do, how you know if you're successful and so on? Absolutely. Well, one of the things I do love just about the title of my role is that I get to kind of make it up anytime because nobody really knows <laughs> what a senior, just a word of advice. Like when you're crossing the border and they say, what's your profession? Don't say senior practice leader, just think manager or something, you know, <laughs> director, make it up. They really have no clue. My parents still don't know. So maybe I'll have to listen to this podcast. It sounds very impressive. It's Doesn't it though? I really yes, like it. Yes, it does. And, it does. Well, I think one of the key differences, if I compare it to even my last organization where I was internally focused, my clients were the internal leadership group, the employees looking at the talent initiatives that were going to improve our performance as an organization. Now I have the privilege of spending a lot of time researching, speaking to experts, including yourself, on what are the best practices, the next practices, the right practices, and being able to engage people in conversations around that, quite similar to what you're doing here with this podcast, that can be of service to clients in all kinds of industries. So the Canadian Management Center serves so many different types of organizations, small, mid, large, all kinds of industries. And being able to provide timely information to those clients. It's quite different than what I did because before I was in one organization that I could wrap my hands or uh, my arms around and really understand the needs. We have different needs coming all the time. So being able to figure out what are those commonalities, because my role is is more of, um, I guess, a thought leader role, being in touch with what are the needs right now, what do organizations need, and being able to distill that into some messages that people can consume. So you actually participated. You offered a lot of value. We worked together, you know, with the beginning of this pandemic as an example where we put together a series of conversations that we called reality check conversations. And it was sort of this just-in-time nuggets of advice for leaders and employees to help them as we navigated through this pandemic. So you and I had a couple of those conversations. So I get to do that kind of stuff, which is fun. It's juicy and it feels like being of service and also feeds my need to be a this learning junkie. So I love to be able to research stuff and then try to distill it in into tidbits that our listeners and our clients can use and then infusing that 
ideally in some of the courses that we're developing. So that's a lot of what I'm working around, working on rather right now as people are trying to figure out how to rethink the way that we work in this post-pandemic. I use post-pandemic somewhat as an optimistic phrase because I know yeah. that in it's the middle of the fourth very wave. much around. Yeah, I appreciate where you're coming from because it, it's feeling long. It's fatiguing for folks for sure. So I think post-pandemic kind of highlights the light at the end of the tunnel. So you, you did allude earlier to a project you're working on where you're looking at how companies are planning for that back to work and hybrid. What kind of balance does it look like? Can you tell us a little bit about that? So absolutely. So, you know, we surveyed a large number of, so we had, we did a webcast recently and the audience were mainly HR, OD professionals, although there were certainly, certainly representation from some senior leaders, et cetera. And it was over 600 respondents just to get a feel for what did that post-pandemic workplace look like? And a disproportionate amount are going with a hybrid workplace. There is a bit of a split between whether the days in the office are being dictated by the organization or by employees. There were more organizations allowing employees to dictate, but there was it was it was kind of close. The numbers were kind of close. And also to understand what are some of the biggest challenges that are going on. And the number one challenge that surfaced was maintaining organizational culture. So I, I think that speaks to so many. There's so many pieces that come into the culture piece. But I think one of the biggest both challenges and opportunities we have as talent professionals right now and people in the learning space is helping organizations pause and assess what's working and not because, you know, we talk about how we just jump into things. So we, we weren't giving the grace or the time to think about how we wanted to work as everything suddenly shifted remote, right? We had to superimpose our ways of working onto a virtual environment. And some things worked really well and some things don't work very well at all, which includes having, you know, cramming in a million Zoom meetings a day and burning people out, not having boundaries anymore between your work life and your home life. I think it's an opportunity to really rethink employee engagement because I think there's a huge retention risk. Well, we're already seeing this. I think it was deemed the great resignation, right? People are leaving jobs in droves. People are rethinking their definition of success. You know, many of us during the pandemic, as difficult as it was, got to spend more time with our family members or maybe incorporate self-care exercise, whatever that is, in a different way. And now we're kind of like, hmm, what do I really want moving forward? And people are willing to leave those jobs if they're if they're not being afforded the the flexibility that they either got used to or that they realize that they need and they want. So I think we're challenged as organizations to figure out how do we give greater autonomy to people, you know, so how do we give people choice, you know, maybe making it easier to move to a new role within the organization or to adjust one's role, how we work, when we work versus because it's so easy now, probably easier than ever to go work for another organization as sort of those geographical boundaries have been stretched because people, organizations are like, oh, this work can happen remotely. So I can go hire somebody on the other side of the planet. The competitive landscape has expanded. And it's really, it's so interesting because, you know, there's been so much, I read the paper every day. It's to, it's an old habit from my, my dad used to receive it here at the house. So they've been talking about it for a few months around people choosing to up and leave and move to Nova Scotia. My, one of my best friends just did that, right? She's been in 
Ontario for 30 years, originally from down east, and she moved back home and bought a house there and is able to still keep her job and work remotely. Right now, before the pandemic started, that would not have been an option. It was all about FaceTime being in the office. So here she is. And she's one of many. I mean, the real estate prices have just like ballooned in all of these smaller communities as people figure this out. And then you have reports out of San Francisco and so on in the tech area. They're starting to say, if you're not within whatever miles, kilometers of head office, we're going to pay you less, right? If you're living in a market where the cost of living is lower, we're not going to pay you the same. So it creates all of this other stuff. And then Howard Levitt, as an employment lawyer, was quoted yesterday talking about, be careful that you don't outsource yourself out of a job because employers, as much as there's the great resignation, they're opening up to a greater pool in terms of the virtual space. So it's fascinating and scary. Yeah, there's a whole level of complexity that comes with that for sure and really brings up issues of equity, you know, in terms of, you know, some people even who can can work remotely while certain colleagues don't have that, but, you know, due to the nature of their job, but also issues around they saw a disproportionate number of working mothers, for example, in one of the surveys I was reading, you know, who opt for remote work, but then we're also seeing that those individuals who work remotely can be more likely over overlooked for promotions. You know, it's maybe that proximity bias that comes into play. So I think you were going to see a lot of a need to change so many of our people strategies in light of all the new ways of working and thinking and developing and promoting people in an environment that's not necessarily face-to-face. Well, and I was thinking, you know, when you were speaking earlier about, you know, digging into what, what you're seeing and hearing in these different organizations is it sounds like there's this gradual awareness that, holy cow, like we we were in reaction mode, right? As we all were, you know, I have so many clients that it was like, I packed up for two weeks. I was told take two weeks worth of stuff, right? And I've never gone back to get the rest of my files and I've somehow managed, you know, year and a half later. But, you know, we thought it was two weeks or maybe a month. And it's it's continued. So there's been this reactionary mode, you know, it's survive, keep your head above water. And now people are starting to go, okay, we need to be proactive. We need to be very intentional as we consider how are we going to really sounds like involve our workforce in how they want to do this, right? It's not just about how we want to do it. It's it needs to be both parties at that table. Yeah, I think the the power word there is intentionality because very true, we've been in reactive mode and now we really have an opportunity to craft what that looks like and to really support employees. Even in the organization that I'm in now, you know, a lot of people were were working from home, like we said, thinking it was a temporary situation. And now that it's not temporary anymore, are we equipped, like even physically, do people have the there's some organizations now who are, for example, allowing budgets for people to upgrade their internet or have an ergonomic chair, a monitor. So just the physical environment that people are in that's going to maximize their ability to bring their best selves to their to their desk. But all the way to just how how we interact. I know that I've been very intentional in sometimes going old school, like asking people, like, can we not have a video call or even (laughs) me too? I've been doing walk and talks like phone walks. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, I was like, I would like to go for a walk on my lunch. Can we have our update meeting? If there's nothing that I need to be, you know, actively accessing my computer for, then like, can we please take a break? Because this isn't working. Like, 
I'm feeling so exhausted, you know, using my out of office differently, having a rules of engagement that are different, letting it be okay for me to say, you know, I'm head down, heads down on a creative project for the next couple hours. And this is how you reach me. So having a lot of communication norms that need to be set up when you can't see people because you don't know, like, are they there? Or are they available? You know, there's so much we need to relearn. I know that you and I had a conversation when you participated in one of our webcasts on virtual conversations. We talked about how do you create psychological safety in a virtual environment for like a difficult conversation? I was thinking about that too. You know, if you're, you're in uh, physical proximity, you can just, you know, pop, I could pop my head into your office and say, hey, Lisa, you know, got a sec, want to grab a coffee, walk over to Starbucks, whatever. The informality of that creates some safety. But the minute now, I don't know if you're at your desk and I've got to set up a meeting and, you know, just sending a meeting request increases the formality, which decreases the safety. And so, so how do I do that in a way that's not going to put you on the defensive? So these are all the things that all of us, whether we're leaders or individual contributors need to be thinking about so that we can work more effectively with one another. And because a lot of people are on edge still, you know, in terms of the the burnout, the ambiguity. And so safety is, is still an issue, the psychological safety piece. I agree. I think that's a point very well taken. And, you know, I think the mood has shifted a little bit for some folks where there's just this frustration, right? Like I'm always on and I can't, you know, people concerned about their careers. Certainly, you know, I can't just sort of run into somebody and have conversations with somebody who might be, would be mentor. How do you find a mentor when you start in a new job during a pandemic working from home? That seems to, I keep running into that too. And I think because organizations are so busy and people are on on a hamster wheel a lot of the time, it's like breathless between meetings. It's really difficult to be intentional about taking that reflective time and putting some thought into how do we want to be right? How do we want to operate in this new reality that we, that we find ourselves in? It's really amazing when you start to, to look around at all the, the assumptions or ways of operating just because we've always done it that way. Like I was thinking the other day about how, you know, the default is like a 60 minute meeting. Well, I'm tempted to just book a 22 minute meeting. <laughs> 22. Well, that's innovative. I don't know. <laughs> 27. I like seven. But, you know, just it's amazing when you start to look at all the things that we just do on autopilot without saying like, is that actually smart? Like, is that really serving us? Well, that, and th- those are two great questions that, that we can ask ourselves, right? So for listeners, you know, like that's, if you, you sort of feel like you're in reaction mode or your organization is, or your leaders are and so on, you're thinking, well, what can I do? You know, I, I invite people to consider like asking those same questions you just posed, like, huh, okay, well, wait a minute, what's working, what's not working? Right. How could we shift things? How, how could we challenge how we've been getting things done? Could a 22 minute meeting maybe work better than an hour meeting that goes to 105 because it, the updates went long? Could we move the updates to email and use the, the meetings more for getting things done and getting things hashed out? So it's all of those things. How could we shift things for better effect? Yeah, you're hearing a lot of conversations around that in terms of reflecting on what am I at my best, what's working for me and not. So, for example, my creative time, if I can have a couple hours in the morning to do my thinking really works for me. On the other hand, what I am missing is, you know, one of the ways that I'm most creative sometimes is being able to just talk things out with someone and to bounce ideas. And that was probably really annoying to colleagues when I'd be going into the office, right, (laughs) To, 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 to do. But 
So now I'm wanting to set up some structures to be able to do that in a way that's not going to interrupt somebody else's flow. But like, when's a good time for me to kind of interrupt you with like, what do you think of this? Like, I'm that kind of person who likes to bounce stuff off and build off of that. So starting to learn what ups your productivity, what kind of what impedes it in this new working world and setting some expectations with the people that you work most frequently with, I think can be really helpful. Yeah, very, very important words of wisdom. Well, so we're nearing the end of our time together today. So I'd I'd love to ask you one last question before we we wrap, which is, you know, as you look back on on your long, successful career, varied career, what's one piece of advice you would tell yourself back at the very beginning, if you could? I would encourage younger Tanya to follow the road of the, this sounds harsh. I was going to say, follow the road of the greatest discomfort. But I was going to say, like, follow the, don't be afraid of discomfort. There were so, so many things, opportunities that felt too risky. And it's still something I struggle with today. I like to take on things that I have a pretty good sense I can be successful at. Instead of just, you know, saying yes and opening myself up to the possibility that it may not be perfect. And remembering that if you wait for perfection, you miss a lot of opportunities. So I think even being invited to speak today, had you asked me, I don't know how many years ago, I probably would have been like, yeah, thanks for thinking of me. But no, no, thanks. It just, you know, not having done it. So just, you know, I would just encourage younger Tanya just to take more risks. Don't be so serious. Have fun with it. Because it's, it's kind of ironic, right? Being a learning person who doesn't like to make mistakes when that's sort of inherent in the process of learning. But yeah, forget perfectionism and just just have fun. I, I see it in, in a lot of people that I talk to in our area of focus. A lot of talent, OD, HR folks, that perfectionism piece is alive and well, right? So being a little gentler with ourselves and deciding to see failures and mistakes as, as learning, which which is much easier to embrace. Yeah. And we're a lot harder on ourselves than most people are. So, you know, just remembering that too, it's a very different filter that we apply to our standard of excellence. It's true. It's true. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for coming on the show. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. I think you're leaving the listeners with some really interesting food for thought and questions they can ask themselves. Thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your colleagues. Better yet, head over to iTunes and let us know. When you subscribe and leave me a five-star review, not only do I glow from within, but more people will learn about the show and why they should listen. Oh, and each month, I'll select one lucky reviewer to receive their free personal True Tilt profile. Until next time, keep telling the talent management truth.